A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. A couple of years ago, a cop was shot dead on a deserted pier in the tiny nation of Belize. The only other person there that night was a frightened young woman found covered in blood. By all appearances, it was an open and shut case. But not in Belize, where this woman was connected to a mysterious billionaire who basically runs the place. Justice will not be served in this case. She's going to get away with it. Or will she? White Devil, a Campside Media original. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. This episode is brought to you by the Center for Addiction and Mental Health, CAMH. It's never an easy call with so many problems in the world to know where to direct the money that you donate when you want to help out in this world. But what I can tell you is that when you donate to CAMH, you're saving lives. We know about the opioid crisis. We know about the mental health crisis. They are doing the work. Help change mental health care forever. Your support will help CAMH build a future where no one is left behind. Donate at CAMH.ca slash CanadaLand to help us treat addiction and build hope. This episode of Canada Land is brought to you by Douglas, a mattress that is trusted by more than 200,000 Canadians from coast to coast to coast. It's a great mattress at a very reasonable price point. Comes with a 20-year warranty and a great deal for our listeners. Douglas is giving you a free sleep bundle with each mattress purchase. Get the sheets, pillows, mattress, and pillow protectors free with your Douglas purchase today. Visit douglas.ca slash Canada Land to claim this offer. That is douglas.ca slash CanadaLand. This episode of CanadaLand is brought to you by HelloFresh, the meal kit service dedicated to making cooking fun, easy, and convenient. For 50% off of your first HelloFresh box, visit hellofresh.ca slash CanadaLand. Use the offer code CanadaLand when you subscribe. Ashley Chinati. Hello. How are you doing? How's your summer? It's been fantastic. Reporter for the National Post, one-third of the Canada Land Commons hosting team. Uh, it is good to see you here. Yeah, it's great to be here. It's been a while since I've been in this little sweat box of a, <laughs> of a booth. <laughs> yeah, avoiding it in summer is a good idea. Uh, today we are going to discuss Joseph Boyden's new claim to Ashkenazi Jewish ancestry. <laughs> Welcome to the tribe, Joe. We will talk about the CBC's new news quartet. Uh, it seems that the CBC has designated that every third employee uh, will be replacing Peter Mansbridge. So it's good to have you here to talk about that stuff, Ashley. It's always great to be here. This episode is brought to you by Isabel B. Holper, Michael Vopney, Grant McCracken, Mark Rayner, Kevin Walsh, Judson Richards, Isaac Yellen, and Daniel DeBow. Daniel, why did you decide to be awesome? I support Canada Land because I believe in supporting disruptive startups that are challenging the status quo. I think that's what Canada Land is, and so I'm really happy to be a supporter. And Ashley, this episode is brought to you by HelloFresh. HelloFresh creates new delicious recipes with step-by-step instructions designed to take about 30 minutes for everyone from novices to seasoned home cooks. Short on time. Are you a novice or a seasoned home cook? I'm definitely a seasoned home cook. I don't think that I would necessarily need all of the HelloFresh instructions, but the thing I do like about it is that there's no food waste. You would freestyle. You would get the box. You'd have exactly the amount of food you need to make something, and because you know what you're doing, you're going to throw away the instructions. I think it's cool because, like, if you don't know, you can follow the instructions, or sometimes you get, like, oh, I've never made that. I don't know how that's made, and you learn a new technique, and you can you can kind of improv away from the instructions, but as you say, no food waste and no need to shop. That is the big value of HelloFresh meal kits. They are the best meal kits you're going to get sent to your house. They source the freshest ingredients, measure to the exact quantity needed so there is no food waste, all delivered to your doorstep in a special insulated box for free. And if this sounds interesting to you, if you've been hearing about HelloFresh and these meal services all over the place, there's a reason why. It's because they really make things easier and make it possible to eat healthier at home. So why don't you just try it if you haven't yet? And here's a great way to get started. You get 50% off of your first box when you visit hellofresh.ca slash CanadaLand and use the promo code CanadaLand. Just go check it out right now. This 
This episode is brought to you by the Center for Addiction and Mental Health, CAMH. We hear a lot about the opioid crisis. We talk a lot about the mental health crisis. These are serious problems. These problems affect us all. They've affected my life and my community. They're not intractable problems. I don't know what's going to solve them on a policy level, but day-to-day helping people, that's what CAMH does. They do it on the ground when people need help, and they do it through research. The team at CAMH gave our team a tour of their facilities, and we were really just blown away by the incredible, heroic work that they're doing every day. They treat everyone with dignity, and their research is seeking and finding real solutions for everyone around the world. Help change mental health care forever. Your support will help CAMH build a future where no one is left behind. Donate at camh.ca slash CanadaLand to help CAMH treat addiction and build hope. This episode is brought to you by Douglas, a mattress trusted by more than 200,000 Canadians from coast to coast to coast. Trust is important. There are a lot of mattress lies out there, a lot of mattress liars. And I, I, I didn't intend the pun, but it occurred to me that there is one as I was saying those words. Listen, I am not lying to you. Uh, I have uh, experienced the Douglas mattress. It is an exceptional mattress at a surprisingly affordable price point. It is a mattress that sleeps cool, doesn't have that weird thing in the summer where the mattress gets like an oven. It's a very good product. It's delivered to your house in a box. You don't have to go to a big mattress store. It is a medium firm mattress, which is what Canadians prefer, and it comes with a 365-night trial and a 20-year warranty. What more can I tell you? Douglas is giving our listeners a free sleep bundle with each mattress purchase. Get the sheets, pillows, mattress, and pillow protectors free with your Douglas purchase today. Visit douglas.ca slash CanadaLand to claim this offer. Joseph Boyden is back. I don't even, like when I saw this topic, I was like, do we, do we even do it? Because I'm so sick of this. I, I know. I, I just. Shady's back. <laughs> back again. <laughs> and why is he back? He's got a new book coming out, which I think oh, McLean should have mentioned. Oh, I really think they should have mentioned know? that. I didn't even know that. He's got this 4,000 word, like there is some new stuff in there, actually. I think kind of despite himself, it's 4,000 words. Very touchy-feely, like, my name is Joseph Boyden, uh, very defensive. I feel in my heart that I am Indigenous, and therefore I am. There's the too-long-didn't-read version of this piece for everybody who hasn't yeah, read it. Yeah, reasserting his his indigeneity, his claim, it's a, it's a messy and thorny topic that I think a lot of Indigenous people are much more qualified to, to I'm chime in I'm sitting here on. like, where's Ryan McMahon, my other Commons co-host, because he had such a great take on this yeah. when it came and, you know, was talking a lot about something I'd never heard of called blood quantum that Joseph Boyden actually raises in the piece, this really thorny issue of... Who gets to claim indigeny and who qualifies for status in this country? And he's not someone. He talks about having a status card, but it's a membership card to a certain Ontario Métis group. It is not a status card. And by no means is a status card a sign that you are no. aren't indigenous. And there was a whole Supreme Court ruling on this. And the government's in like a clusterfuck of trying to restructure the status process. Well, this Woodland Métis club that like apparently you like sign out a form and send 20 bucks and you get a card back. It's sort of like joining like, you know, the Captain Crunch Super Warriors club. Like it's <laughs> it is not. I don't know. It, it, I, I, OK, maybe. I, I, look, I, I, I'm, I'm just going to, you know, Robert Jago, who I think raised some of the initial questions that that prompted APTN to mm-hmm. to run Jorge Barrera's investigation, he wrote up his response, uh, which everybody should read. Uh, for and us there was on a Candleland. great response on um, McLean's as well. They yeah, have done a very good sure, job. Sure, they with do that. This. Strangely, they, they that somehow you know absolves them of all sins. I'm going to deal with this on the basis of just like a media critic reading a piece of content. Cool. The the Boyden piece, the new Boyden piece, what caught my attention were some contradictions to his own story. His story has shifted again. We ran a piece earlier about all the various types of indigeneity that Boyden has made a claim to Mm -hmm. over the years. And one of the things that you'll read in profiles of Boyden throughout the years and even quotes that are attributed to him is that he has claimed Mi'kmaq ancestry. Now, when this controversy broke out, he backtracked on that and he and he wrote in his first back in the, in the winter, he said, to the best of my knowledge, I've never referred to myself as Mi'kmaq, but in some interviews in the past, I assume my Nipmuc heritage was misheard as Mi'kmaq. So he basically threw the journalist under the bus and said, I said Nipmuc, you wrote Mi'kmaq, that's on you. 
And then, of course, a lot of people went- But then why didn't you correct anybody? Right. There's that. And then there were actual direct quotes attributed to him where he says, make mob, but maybe they they all made the same mistake, which we pointed out is sort of hard to buy at the time. Then because that didn't hold up, I will suggest, in his most recent story, he's changed it again. And now he says that he, in fact- did think for a time that uh, a number of years ago, one of my siblings found a Boyden Mi'kmaq clan in Newfoundland. We were thrilled to find these Boyden Mi'kmaqs, but then we later found out that we were unrelated. So now he's kind of added cover if in fact somebody can prove that he called himself Mi'kmaq. There was a time when, so like that story shifts. The first time the scandal came up, he apologized for calling himself Métis. Now he is saying, actually, I'm a member of this Métis organization. The whole thing just boggles my mind. I hate that we're still talking about it. And the thing that stood out to me in that piece that I'd really like to talk about is that he basically implies that the reason all of this reporting came out was because he stood up for um, Stephen Galloway. Yeah. And the, uh, during the whole allegations of misconduct with UBC, and there was that letter signed by a ton of literary luminaries in Canada defending Stephen Galloway. And in that McLean's piece, Boyden basically seems to say, I became a target because of this. But that's just factually not true. You have people who are Indigenous reporters who've been saying that there were questions about his origin story, for lack of a better word, for a long time. Yeah, I think the Galloway thing played a role and it certainly prompted some people to speak up, but those questions were swirling for a long time. And as the Globe and Mail reported in in their uh, lengthy piece on this, I received a package of information questioning Boyden's ancestry long before the Stephen Galloway scandal. So so there were people who were trying to get the media on this and those questions were going on for a long time. So I think that pinning it on that, I mean, the piece is very, very defensive. He he takes the opportunity to attack his attackers, which you know, you're talking about a lot of the prominent voices in the indigenous community. And he kind of like just throws them under the bus as there they are people who claim to act in some public interest in order to publicly shame us and, and, and kind of throws in a tacit fuck you to, I guess, Robert Jago and APTN and everybody else. Let's not pretend that everybody in the indigenous community has the same opinion on Boyden at this point. Like it's it's very clear that it's it remains a divisive issue for a lot of people. Yeah, divisive is interesting. I think that divisive, like, there are people who support his claim. Mm -hmm. Most who have been vocal do not. Yeah. Most of them do not. Yeah. And those who support his claim are not really engaging in the discourse. I mean, and he has affiliations and he's done work in those communities. So there are people who are connected to him in various ways. He is a good writer. And, you know, I didn't find it a particularly persuasive piece. But there was one part that I could tell would persuade people where he was saying, look, I do have some level of indigenous DNA. I do have people in indigenous communities who accept me and consider me one of theirs. I have spent time in these communities. I have done work to help these communities. Doesn't that make me in some way indigenous? And I I think a lot of people read that and be compelled. But then, you know, it was, the point was made online that it's not so complicated. It's not some wishy-washy thing of like, oh, indigeneity is such a, is such an amorphous concept and you have to know about all this ancient. No, just think about nationhood Mm -hmm. and substitute the word. I'll substitute the word here. I'm going to read you some of Boyden's piece and I'm going to substitute the word indigenous for something else. If I am accepted by people in Swedish communities, if I have been traditionally adopted by a number of people in Swedish communities, if my DNA test shows I have Swedish blood, if I have engaged my whole career in publicly defending Swedish rights, as well as using my public recognition as an author to shine light on Swedish issues, am I not in some way Swedish? And we would have a pretty easy time answering no. Yeah. If you don't have a Swedish passport, you're not Swedish. And if I went out and got a 23andMe done, like I'm blonde haired, green eyed, raised as waspy as possible. And all of a sudden it showed that I had some Jewish blood I didn't know about. Like I'm Hungarian on my one side. So it's possible, you know, and I wouldn't all of a sudden be like, you know, I really I feel like I am a part of this this community of Jewish people. No, it's silly. Like, it's it's yeah. and, and he does that actually. He says I have he, he, he it's interesting because he says the DNA doesn't matter. I don't care about my blood, but I did have a DNA test yeah. done, which is a strange contradiction and I found that yes, I that I do have indigenous blood and I have Ashkenazi Jewish DNA and I have Arctic DNA, which doesn't actually mean anything. Celtic DNA, these things like don't really, there's lots of people from the Arctic. The piece like he name checks my old friend, the Cree elder, 
Uh, Lisa Michis is one of my sisters. Many years ago, a man I considered one of my greatest life teachers gifted me with one of my traditional Anishinaabe names, a wise indigenous woman I know, my dear friend and sister, Tina Keeper. Like, it, it really does read like, I have a lot of black friends, you know, like it, it's... So I think there are two important historical contexts that we need to acknowledge as part of the framework of this discussion. And one is the fact that there was a long tradition, like there are a lot of indigenous families that hid their indigenated because of the history of the residential school and other punitive acts. I'm not saying that's what actually happened mm-hmm. with Joseph Boyden's family, but I do think we need to acknowledge that. And then I think we also need to acknowledge the long history of white people who or people who maybe are mostly white and might have like a trace, but no actual family ties to indigenous communities exploiting and pretending to be representatives of those communities yeah. for commercial gain. Gray owling. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. You know, back to the media side of this, you know, Robert Jago points out that that there is something interesting that happened here with this new Boyden piece, which is that when the first one came out, the mainstream media rushed to his defense rather like extremely and Conrad Yakubuski and Globe and Mail calling his critics a lynch mob and a lot of stuff like that. And that didn't happen this time. I found this this very long piece by Eric Andrew Gee in the Globe really interesting. Just it just kind I of I actually felt bad for him that they clearly had it ready to go yeah. and didn't know about this McLean's thing and the McLean's that thing happened. It. And then they just like pushed it out. Because this was so telling. It was this becoming story of this guy who searched for an identity and an identity as a writer and found it in his knowledge of indigenous communities and then latched on yes. to that identity. It really confirmed what I suspected because I, I I don't think that Joseph Boyden is a cunning con man who I think he's a guy who like a lot of like, you know, white guys have everything, but they don't have this. They don't have like, if you want to be a novelist, you need like suffering, substance, history. And apparently Boyden was like another white guy searching for something to get into. He writes damningly, In the early 90s, Boyden began working on a novel about a young man driving around America on a motorcycle. It was at least partly autobiographical and by all accounts, bad. (laughs) I mean, that's just it. Is is it like that? We don't want to read that novel. And so he really writes like, I always suspected that this was the thing with Boyden. In high school, he began wearing his hair in a mohawk, which is a bit conflicted because his uncle, who supposedly was Ojibwe, was not mohawk. It sounds like a a young guy searching for some kind of thing and, and, and making a pastiche. Out of all of these various, I got a little claim to this. I read a little bit about that. And then, and this, this was the thing that I found most damning. He ultimately spends a lot of time as a teacher visiting Musuni and later refers to it as his creative gold mine. Right. And, and here is where he meets people who tell him stories where he actually gets what a novelist needs. Like he, the ability to describe things accurately. He takes people's stories. That's fine. Novelists do that. They steal. They're thieves. And that's what a lot of people are defending is a novelist's right to steal. That he can do it's kind of it kind of sucks you know because it's like he he knows coming from our world he knows oh this stuff is good material it's much more interesting material than a guy on a motorcycle and i can write it in a way that will be palatable and 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 will, will relate to people and i can use this to fill that hole of where's the substance from but the tricky part is when he starts making the claim himself yeah. claiming to speak as one and for indigenous canadians and that's what he's yet to back down from. And that is the missed opportunity here. Like people have said, like, well, what do you want from the guy? Is he supposed to just like curl up in a corner and die? Is he supposed to go away and never write again? And, and no, I don't think anyone's asking that of him. I think that like um, Wab Canoe opened the door for mm-hmm. a, a path for Boyden saying, look, there's a lot of people in our communities who are not one of us and they have to just accept their status and, and be honest. He He refuses to do that. Yeah, I think the piece could have been, it could have been more self-reflective. He's like, oh, I've listened and learned and blah, blah, blah. But to me, it didn't show any listening. It didn't show any, like, I understand why people are upset about this. It was very defensive. Yeah. And maybe he still needed more distance. But perhaps if he'd been less less defensive and more like, look, I understand why people are frustrated by my claim. Here's a little bit of why I think I have one, but I understand you know, the frustration here. I should have listened and taken a back seat. He sort of dances around that sooner. Yeah. And I just want to go forward and 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 be more open to listening. And I've I've taken all of this 
and learned from it. I misrepresented myself. I misrepresented myself. Like that's what people want to hear. He obviously did. And and it's very human and understandable that he did that. That he got you know, you hear the story as the Globe writes it, where he he's searching for an identity. He comes to his literature teacher with his first short story about indigenous issues, and he's praised. You found it, you found your material. He keeps doubling down on it. He gets caught in this thing. It becomes his career. I get how that happened. I think that everybody's pretty like willing to forgive. And I think that there's even almost like a guilt that followed him that might like he kind of knew it the whole way through. He was very careful to always do good works in those communities and try to somehow even the scales. But if he is coming out with another book that he's going to profit from, yeah. it makes I it makes me feel icky. How do you it think it's going to do? Do you, th- do you think that this I is going to I think it's going to do better because I think, I think more people fine. are going to know who he is now than yeah. before. And the people who like his stuff, they just feel defensive and they're going to buy it out of protest that they're not going to be told who to read by. You know what the sad thing is here is... One of the main complaints you hear from indigenous voices on this is that he he's taken up indigenous space. And that's true to the extent that he, you know, gave testimony to the Truth and Reconciliation Commission, that he took, a, I think, shamefully an award for indigenous writing. Um, and though he tried to mitigate that by sharing the prize money, whatever, he has taken up space in public panels when you say, oh, we want an indigenous voice. Yeah. Let's get Joseph Boyden. He's certainly taken up space in, in that sense. But the idea that the valuable space that he takes up the only indigenous author you're going to find at the airport bookstore, the only indigenous author who has massive blockbuster successes, like, you, you know, you know, Lee Miracle or Chelsea Fowler. There are tons of gang, indigenous yeah. writers. None of them are anywhere near him in terms of sales. The idea that well, that space. Indian Indian's been on the bestseller list for a while. Yeah. Good point. Good point. You know, I, I, I guess what I'm challenging here is the idea that if it wasn't Boyden, it would be another indigenous voice. And it's a fault of the media that we like to latch on to the indigenous voice, the black yeah. voice, the whatever. You know what I mean? Like name your and and they'll latch on and there will be There's the same for, people quoted yeah. and say every story about trans issues. There's like a handful of people who are quoted in those. And it's it's a laziness on the part of the media where it's like, OK, so we have this person and there are a person on this issue and everybody tries to get them instead of actually being like, well, what about someone else who might not be as tested but has a fresh perspective? And I think that that is a big fault of lack of diversity in newsrooms, a lack of resources. If you're just checking a box, you, yeah. you know what would be the best outcome of this is not that Boyden's career is ruined. I don't particularly care. And if people want to read his books, more Go power ahead. to them. I want to see, and I think we will see, indigenous critics reviewing this book for major media. And then I'd love to see the publishing houses actually like say, okay, well, we actually have somebody who's not a pretend. We have indigenous authors who we're going to actually roll out a major commercial release for because obviously there's a readership for this stuff. Agreed. I would like to see more effort from publishing houses put into promoting indigenous works because it's not that they aren't out there. It's that we don't hear about them enough. Now is the time to duly note that which should be duly noted. Duly, Ashley, you came in here quite worked up about some news that was breaking. Oh, God, we got the verdict today about three Toronto police officers who were accused of gang raping a junior parking enforcement officer after some rookie drinks night. And once again, we have a verdict where the judge is saying there's reasonable doubt because her story doesn't match up. But the whole point is she was supposed to be too intoxicated to consent. Now, who has a perfect timeline for something if they're too intoxicated to consent? Like, there has to be a better way for us to start measuring this because we keep seeing these cases where the judges are like, I don't like this. They probably did something wrong, but I have a little bit of reasonable doubt. And are they overblowing reasonable doubt? Like, I'm not a lawyer, but at the end of the day, like these cases are so egregious of these women who are passed out and something is happening to them and the men involved keep getting acquitted and I just can't wrap my head around it anymore. And then on top of it, they're cops. So you sort of have that like, Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Your, your claim that you were violated while drunk uh, is not credible because of your crazy, drunken, hazy memory of it. Sorry. Double jeopardy. Yeah. And it's yeah. just like, and, and we saw this with the the taxi driver case in Halifax. Yeah. We've seen this so many other times. I, like I could list them off forever. And I just, I'm just exhausted by it. Like I, every time I'm like, I don't think I can get angry about this again. And then it happens and I'm worked up again. So I, I want to duly note how messed up this is. And we clearly need some clarity about how to prosecute when the complainant is too drunk to consent, because I just don't think it's working at this point. 
Duly noted. I would like to duly note a column that Sue Ann Levy wrote, uh, ostensibly and possibly while intoxicated, in which she writes, she's very critical of this plan to counter the epidemic of uh, fentanyl overdoses with uh, by, by equipping cops with the drug that cures people of dying. I don't know what the naloxone. technical term is. Uh, yeah, but I think it's stopping people from dying is what naloxone does. Yeah, it prevents the overdose. Yeah, so she thinks that this is just like, come on, you liberals like John Tory. Uh, Mayor John Tory, always keen to allow the left to embrace their permissive hug, <laughs> hug an illegal drug user slash thug scheme on some mistake. I like this idea that you're a thug. Like the problem now is that recreational people doing a bump of cocaine are dropping dead. Yeah. But they are an illegal drug user slash thug. And there's talk of having Toronto police distributing naloxone, a drug which is said to counteract opioid overdoses. There's nothing, there's nothing like rumorish yeah. about like, no, naloxone. Maybe this works. No, yeah. it like it yeah. bloody works. It saves lives. You talk to places that have used these interventions and they're they're basically calling it a miracle we drug. We don't need to. I like, so she writes, she writes, oy vey. So now instead of arresting people using illegal drugs and perhaps giving them the injection of tough love they need, police officers will be expected to act as social workers. So what she's literally angry about, what she's literally suggesting is that rather than inject them with an antidote that will stop them from dying, they should ex- exert tough love because after all, they're they're lawbreakers, which like means letting them die. So put handcuffs on them and let them die. Right. Here, Here's what I, I'm going to be very generous to Sue Ann Levy here because in the aftermath of this, People were like, you're a monster. Like, what the hell are you talking about? Uh, and even John Tory responded like, are you out of your mind? And that's not what he said. But I mean, that's sort of like, we're, we're so out of the range. This isn't even like a conservative position, like let the overdosing drug addict die. You're into this m- like monstrous, like crazy uncle at the table territory. I don't think she actually knew what she was writing about. Nowhere in her column does it actually suggest, like, I think she thinks it's methadone. Or something. Oh, like as opposed to something that just stops overdoses. I'm, 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 I'm being generous more, more so than maybe even she wants, because when people attacked her, she, she, I think that she was cornered and she didn't want to admit. I didn't actually know what naloxone. Because I, I mean, I don't know. I can't believe. I can't believe that that's what she was suggesting. Is could that be what she was suggesting? She doesn't actually say in here, let them die. She says, you, you know, use some tough love. Is it possible that she just didn't know? And when she calls it a supposedly counteract the effects. I think this was written in in, in ignorance. And again, possibly while intoxicated. (laughs) Well, I mean, I think that there was a big factual error in that column in that saying supposedly naloxone stops overdoses. Yeah, shouldn't have gone past the editor. But, you know, not not to speak ill of one of my venerated colleagues, I guess. I think there's a (laughs) kernel of a point in there, though, about cops shouldn't be social workers. And I think that cops should have naloxone, of course, because if they come across an overdose, they should be able to prevent it. Cops have been asking for naloxone kits for a long time. But I do think we need more social workers, more street nurses in Toronto. I live Maybe that's what she meant. Yes. That's that's where that's where that's what Sue Ann really meant. But I live in one of the neighborhoods where a lot of these overdoses are really common. One of the fatal ones just a week or two ago was literally around the corner from my apartment. We've had people wander into our garden so intoxicated before that we've called 311 and been like, is there someone in the area? And they tell us to call 911. And I'm like, we don't need fire and ambulance and cops here. We need someone to come who's like a social worker who can be like, hey, let's get you somewhere while you're having this Yeah, it'd be nice to have a different option. Yeah. Yeah. So I guess that's duly noted. Can you duly note your take on this Google memo? Okay, so this Google anti-diversity screed is uh, the guy got fired who wrote it. The interesting thing, though, is more the takes that are coming after it. So if anyone hasn't seen this story because you've been on vacation... Google engineer wrote this long document, circulated it through the company saying, you know, this isn't an anti-diversity screed, but here's why hiring more women is a bad thing, because science says they're bad at math. It's not a screed if it's science, Ashley. Right. So uh, now we're seeing there are two pieces. There's one in the Globe saying the Google manifesto isn't sexist or anti-diversity. It's science uh, based on... I'm not entirely sure what, like, we know that there are sex-based, actually usually gender-based differences in brain scans. Like, this is an emerging field of science where sometimes you can find that people who identify as trans, their their MRIs for, like, processing certain types of information will align better with their gender identity than their actual physical sex. But this is from a researcher who says that there is, is actual science for the gender gap in STEM. There's 
a ton of science debunking this. If your if your fetus's brain is washed in testosterone, then you get more mathy and you like Lego. And if I don't know, I tried to read this thing. I, yeah. I, I, th- look, there is there are biological indicators of gender. Th- th- somebody made an interesting point that the place where subjective human interpretation comes in and it's not just science is, is the idea of higher and lower. Yeah. You know, that that uh, that you're, we're on some spectrum where science and reasoning and logic is equivalent to testosterone wash and that's put on some pinnacle. This all is interesting and I don't discount it based on some ideology. It's that when we try to, to kind of reconcile this with the world that we live in, in which we have agreed that we do not uh, recognize biological distinctions that designate somebody being more equipped to to perform one profession than somebody else. And difference in the way of thinking is actually a good thing when you're talking about, say, engineering or coming up with the next big thing. So even let's say we accept the idea that men and women process mathematical and scientific information in a slightly different way. None of these studies suggest that there's a difference in the end result of their capability. It's just they might approach a problem differently. And there's actually a lot of research showing that diversity in problem solving produces more creative results. And you're more so actually having a more diverse team of experiences that we can also wrap in, you know, ability and and race and stuff might prevent somewhere like Google from having, say, accidentally racist software. Yes. Well, this this is what my very unmasculine brain is having a tough time articulating. And you, you, you just did a much better job of it. Code is the language in which, like, everything is written. Like, our society is being organized by these apps. And the first code- coders were all women. Women were the only coders for decades, like in World War II through to like the 70s. Yeah. It was a female profession. It's not a, a arena of pure mathematics because it's code. People think it's just math. No, it's it's puzzles and it's problem solving. And code is just a manifestation of what people want it to do. It's a language. Yeah. And the, the things that the software does, the assumptions that it, there are people, there are people making editorial decisions in code. The fact that Silicon Valley and computer engineering is like drastically, overwhelmingly, predominantly male is a huge gender imbalance that we haven't even begun begun to to, to feel the impacts of. Like the things that matter most about how the world is being reorganized are being decided almost purely by men. The fact that we're recognizing that now is probably a good thing. And and to this debate about like, well, you know, Google fired an engineer for being reasonable, uh, this backlash to the memo, a private organization can fire him. Oh, this is an ideology, this is political correctness. I don't think it was. I think that I think that they they have a policy that they are you know uh, trying to make it a gender inclusive company. Somebody circulated a document making a I, I think flawed argument against that. He's out of line with the company. They can fire him. Yeah, you can have you have core values as a company, and you can say uh, we believe in this. And basically, the argument I read from one labor lawyer is he created a hostile work environment by calling into question the capabilities of all of his female colleagues. Yeah. So how is he supposed to sit down in a meeting with a group of women or you say a female superior like that? That in and of itself is something that if you publicly yeah. you're now dealing with, denigrate, with, a, with a colleague who, who who believes that you are biologically at a disadvantage yeah. to do the work that you're all doing together. Exactly. Duly noted. I would like to duly note an unfortunate tweet by a reporter from the Business News Network, Michael Caine. Uh, here's the tweet, which has since been deleted along with his Twitter account. <laughs> I'm just a reporter. Saw two modestly dressed women with religious headgear coming out of the Victoria's Secret store in the Eaton Center. He's just a reporter, folks. Just a reporter. He's just, he's just telling you what he saw. There were two Muslim women who apparently, shockingly, wear underwear. It's it's shocking, you know. No, you know what? Yeah. I'm not going to say that. <laughs> uh, I think that the reason why this was a tweet for him and why this was notable or like a contradiction or evidence of some hypocrisy or funny was that they were, I guess, assumedly buying sexy underwear. Wow. I don't get it. Michael Caine doesn't get it. How can you be so modest to wear a veil in public, but at home you wear sexy underwear? He's caught them in, look, he was set upon, rightly so, for his ignorance, idiocy, and also just, I mean, you know, he didn't include photographs or anything like that, but but just this felt like evidence to me of like what you get when you have this ongoing cultural narrative Mm -hmm. about Muslim women, about the, should they be allowed to wear this? Are they being repressed? Are they being forced to wear it? Do they have no agency in their lives? It's all this this public curiosity about what happens in their private lives. We focus so much... 
the FGM debate that we talked about yeah. on the show recently, everyone worried about, concerned about, brilliantly titillated by all this focus on what's behind the veil, what's happening in this person's life, are they repressed? And it means that you get this like ignoramus mm-hmm. gawking at women coming out of an underwear shop and tweeting publicly about it. Now, I will say this. He's a fool. Should he be fired, as it was suggested? People were going to his boss and saying, get rid of this guy. You know, he's out of whack. I don't think that being uh, an ignorant fool is necessarily a fireable offense. Again, a po- as someone who's gotten in trouble for bad tweets in the past <laughs> and probably will again in the future, I don't think people should be fired for something that isn't a big mistake relating to like a story or something like that. Like I think he learned his lesson here. I think it clearly he needed to be checked on this and needed to take a message, but I don't think he should be fired for clearly just being ignorant of something that has nothing to do with his job. Yeah, it's completely unrelated to his work. And I I actually felt like this is really interesting evidence of something to me. Like, what did he think Muslim women wear underneath their clothes? Like The Mormon underwear? Just how ignorant, uh, how little thought people put Mm -hmm. towards, you know, like, like, like confident enough to speak up publicly, confident enough to make, I think, a joke, but so thoughtless. In his process, like, what did he think? Did, did, did they not have sex? Do they not care about their sexuality? Or would looking sexy for the people in their private lives be like, like a non-issue to them? He obviously hadn't gotten that far, or he just thought that they were part of some, like, uber-chased, like, that's the life through and through. Right. And there are... Orthodox sex in all religions, especially Abrahamic religions, where there is, you know, the chastity continues to like what's allowed in the bedroom. But dude, it's all about sex, isn't it? Isn't like, the, sh- the, the scheidel in the in Orthodox Jews with the wigs? Like it's yeah. all about it's all about public and private. And it, and some of the stuff that Orthodox Jewish women wear, the obsession about like there's the, like they are. If we're talking about seeking out the 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 most interesting fabrics or or, or you know fashion sexy clothing, concern for how they're presented. Like, it's all about that because it's on a continuum. It's on a continuum mm-hmm. of what is shown and what isn't. I mean, it's it, it's all about, you know. <laughs> Duly noted. So Vice has announced uh, company-wide layoffs. It's affecting Vice Canada and uh, 10 employees, I think four editorial. You know, they're not the biggest shop when it comes to their news team and they've lost four of their reporters. Yeah, and they're all great young reporters and I think people should check out their work. This is interesting, I think, because... You know, where are the signs of hope? Complicated signs of hope because some people are crying foul that, you know, oh, these foreign companies come in and, Mm -hmm. you know, and and I think we're going to hear, and I predicted that we're going to hear, as we did when BuzzFeed lost its Ottawa bureau, the newspaper bailout lobby. Oh, look, we, you know, uh, BuzzFeed isn't going to save Canadian journalism. Vice is a Canadian creation. They are, but not a Canadian company, which is another story. But yeah, you know, we're, we're going to see this weaponized, these layoffs weaponized by the bailout the news lobby to say like, we, you know, Vice ain't going to save Canadian news coverage. They're a private company. They're a foreign company. They don't care about Canadian news coverage. And as soon as it suits them, they, and that's true, they, 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 they will cut back their Canadian news coverage as the company, whatever, pivots to video. I think there's some other stuff going on at Vice. You know. Can we duly note how ridiculous the pivot to video is everywhere and i'm sitting here like trying not to go too far because my company is just as guilty of this as everybody else and there's some great video content being produced by all companies but there's just this rush to like plock one like create a video when it doesn't need to be created and then you have good video and one of the things when i taught at ryerson last year i said to my students was don't just try to do every type of medium for every story. If you have a story where it's like about an acrobat, of course you want a video because you want the visual and you have that capability in the digital age. But you don't need it for everyone. And this whole idea that video is going to save the news business is actually driving me crazy because if you look at the stories that do best these days, it's old school enterprise reporting that breaks something and is presented well online. Sometimes it has multimedia elements. Sometimes it doesn't. Yeah. And this rush to make everything shiny and fancy and multimedia, I think, actually takes away from the core of the work that needs to be done. Yeah, I, I agree. I think that everyone's just chasing changes to an algorithm, basically, that, you know, Facebook, lo- you know, for a time loves video and is, is giving predominance to video. And, and dropped that because people didn't like it auto-playing on their phones all the time. Yeah, you know, and I, th- I think you're, you're just ceding too much territory. And I agree. The thing that, the thing that you actually click on is, is news, you know, mm-hmm. if, if it's new. The larger sign and signal here, I think, uh, has to do with Vice burning through their Rogers money. And the, there is like this larger question because their financials are behind a black box. We don't know what's going on 
financially with that company and because they are pretty uncommon in, in demanding a high degree. You know, basically they sign gag orders when you start working at Vice. You can't talk about Vice when you leave Vice. So we don't know that much about what's going on behind the scenes, but I don't know how it even makes sense that they were going to reach profitability in Canada, burning through a $100 million deal. I think it was $50 million in cash or something like that from Rogers. And what's next and what does this mean for one of the only fresh and growing news operations in Canada that, that, that's going somewhere? It's sad. And they do such great work and there's a lot of great reporters there. And I think that they have stuck on a couple really important issues in this country from, you know, RCMP surveillance to boil water advisories to getting some good sit downs with the prime minister. I mean, they have a role to play in our media scape. For sure. But they never figured out how to make money from news. Did any of us, though? I don't know. In the digital age? I mean, I I look at the balance sheet of every publicly traded newspaper company in this country. I mean, they're not good numbers. (laughs) They're not good numbers. I work. They're not good numbers. at I'm I'm saying that we need to try. I'm saying that the idea that you do something else that makes money and that subsidizes your news, that's got to go away. And I think that the only way to make money from news is for people to pay for it directly. And, you know, any other attempt to find some kind of scheme or some kind of benevolent, I mean, you know, maybe you could do it as a charitable thing, but I, I'm, I'm a pretty simple thinker, uh, obviously. And I just think that it's yet to be proven to me that people won't pay for news. And I've yet to see somebody try to sell original high quality news directly and fail. I guess the last thing I just wanted to, and why why I wanted to duly note the Vice thing is that I don't think that this was a failure of Vice's very high quality Canadian journalism. I don't think that this was a failed news business model because Vice is not a news company. I think that Vice is an advertising company that does some journalism. And when the advertising market isn't doing so well, the journalism gets cut. Duly noted. Ashley, I would like to thank our second sponsor, Casper Mattresses. If you have never slept on a mattress, I highly recommend it. I especially recommend from personal experience every night, the mattress made by Casper. So it's important to give the personal testimonial and mattresses are something that I can, I can endorse fully, but I can actually endorse Casper's mattress personally. We've done some Casper spots before. It's the podcast ad. I can do a different sort of endorsement than your usual podcast. Maybe the host has slept on a Casper. Maybe they haven't. Not only have I slept in one, but I've been sleeping. I've been sleeping on my Casper mattress for like, I don't know, a year or two now. And with the spring mattresses, they, they, you just get like that groove, the slump. Yeah, it starts to like wear in. Yeah. And then you, and then like sometimes you have your bed that you're used to sharing to yourself and then you find that nice little spot in the middle that's so high. You're like, and you're ah, like, oh. And then, and then that's sort of, I think that's built into their business model because then you're like, I need a new mattress. Mattresses are damn expensive. Casper mattresses are much less expensive and they don't wear out like that. It feels as good as it did when we took it out of its really strangely small box. It arrives in this teeny, how the hell do they get in there with box? And then it, voomp, it explodes out into your living room. You will like it. You will not want to send it back. If you need to send it back, if you don't like it, you can for free. So it is an obsessively engineered mattress at a shockingly fair price. It combines supportive memory foams to create an award-winning sleep surface with just the right sink and just the right bounce. They have over 20,000 reviews averaging 4.8 out of five stars, free shipping and returns to the US and Canada, and you can try it for free for 100 nights, risk-free in your own home. Designed, developed, and assembled in the US of A. And this is- Make America great again, one mattress at a time. You're not helping. (laughs) This part is brand new, Ashley. Mm. You can get $65. $65, that's more than you'll get from any other promo code for Casper. That is what they're offering to Canada Land listeners, $65. So if you've been thinking about this, do it now. That is $65 off any new mattress purchase by visiting casper.com slash CanadaLand. Use the promo code CanadaLand. Terms and conditions apply. Finally, Ashley, we know who's hosting the National. And they rolled it out like an infomercial. It was amazing. They just like stretched it out. They had this big thing. It was so CBC. It was almost like a parody of itself. Like you, you felt like you were watching like the kind of parody show that the BBC does of itself, but the CBC would never do of itself in the way it was it was announcing this this in the same way that they had Peter Mansbridge retire. Like the whole thing hit this level of of self congratulation and over seriousness that just felt like a parody and none of this is to denigrate the talents of the four people named, but the whole thing is just so it's just so CBC. I didn't watch it. 
<laughs> I, I don't care. I don't care. I, I think Rosie Barton's pretty good. I she's think it's great. I'm gonna. I think I loved her as PMP host. That's like, the thing. I actually think I it's sh- a net loss. Like yeah. I'd rather have her on Power and Politics, mm-hmm. grilling politicians, than doing the National. I don't care about the National. The National doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. A, a nightly newscast doesn't matter. But I think that but, might be what they're trying to say with this. Yes, they're trying to revitalize it and make it matter. And the national as a brand is worse than the guy. I understand why they want to keep the brand. People know the national more than they watch the national. And it might not matter to us, but there is a whole whack of people for whom their nightly newscast still matters. Even those old people who get their news from the nightly newscast are less likely to get it from the CBC than they are to get it from CTV or Global. So, I mean, the National is doing like 500, 600,000 a night. It's still a lot of people. I, I would love those numbers for this podcast, but it's it's they're riding a, a trend downwards. And by the time you get to that newscast, like it's 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 old news. Speaking of old news, what are the names? It's Rosemary Barton, Ian Hannah-Mansing, who I understand uh, Heather Conway like almost forgot was one yeah, of them. Yeah, it was really weird. I think I felt like it felt really staged and orchestrated. And it was one of those things to drag out the drama because you bring up the three people, like names who people had sort of floated for it, but everyone sort of knew Ian Hannah-Mansing was going to be one of them. And then he's not up there. And then she's like, oh, ha ha, here he is. Of and then who are the other two again? Andrew Chang. Yeah. And... Adrian Arsenault, yeah. who I love as a foreign correspondent. And the same thing, I'm going to miss her. Like, it, it always felt like, like there's some crisis going on in the world. And like she has like a transporter. And all of a sudden, Adrian <laughs> Arsenault is there. And you're like reassured. How do you know there's know just one Adrian Arsenault? Well, maybe there's more than one. Okay. I'm not going to make fun of the CBC for this because the Beaverton actually did it for us. They wrote the, uh, I, you know, praise where it's due. CBC splits single white man salary between two women and two minorities. <laughs> I think that says it all. I really hope that's not actually the case. I'm sure that that's the case. I doubt, we know that he was making, because of Canada Lines reporting, we know that he was making $1.1 million at least because that was a few years old. I am relatively sure he was making about 1.5. So I would, I would, I hope for them that they're each getting a quarter of a salary and I'd be, I wouldn't be surprised if they were making less than that. What I'm going to say is this, CBC, you want to revitalize the national, you had Steve Lauderanti helping you, that didn't work out. There's a little shift there of personnel. Here's what you do to revitalize the national. Actually, oh, you're not here to make fun of them. You're actually, here to give them free advice. Is there some idea that I'm like Gameshi's not there anymore because of Canada Land? Mandalang's not there anymore because of Canada Land. CBC's better off because of Canada Land. Okay, Wendy Mesley's going to be doing some weekly media criticism show. We're here to help them. We're giving them good ideas. It is a big institution. We put a lot of taxpayer dollars into it. It is fair game for criticism. And I think this idea that cannot it, it is one of the biggest journalism employers in this country. A lot of people shy from it. And I think that we need to be willing to hold it accountable because it is a massive and super important thing to Canadian democracy, especially in an age when so many of our newspapers are suffering. And I think that's what drove me a little bit nuts about this announcement is all four of them are super talented. Yeah. All four of them have a lot to offer on a reimagined The National. I feel like they are once again chasing the shiny object instead of doing the core. And I think once again, it's one of those things where they're like, Vancouver, Toronto, we're going to do all this flashy internet stuff. Instead of being like, hey, let's open more bureaus and places that have lost their newspapers. They should absolutely do that. And and I think just as a existential, like what should the CBC be doing? Opening more regional bureaus and doing more feet on the ground reporting. I, I, I've said many times, but don't throw out the national brand. I will solve this problem for you, my friends at the CBC. Here's what you do. The New York Times is a great podcast called The Daily, and it's very smart what they do. I've been saying this for a long time. They they have journalists covering stories all over the world. Mm-hmm. If you're going to do a podcast, why not do a podcast where you just have somebody call them up and say, what are you working on? Yeah. And they they produce this thing overnight, and they just call up whatever New York Times reporter is on whatever the biggest story is, and they give you, you start your day with a quick 20-minute, really well-done, intimate news hit. The National shouldn't be a nightly newscast that begins at like 10 p.m. It should start when you wake up the national am the national should be a podcast that you get when you wake up and then you cap you bookend the day with the national at the yes. end of the day you get the national and it's not you do five or ten minutes of a newscast as mansbridge did but then instead of flipping to like some asinine back padding panel you make it the journal what can they do that nobody else can do they want to do like we are big media we are mm-hmm. television shiny so you put those resources towards telling stories in an expensive but the, the expense should be going towards the journalism. So you do in-depth storytelling, documentary style, which they pioneered, which they do better than anybody Everybody when they did it. Everybody has heard the news of the day by the time the national yeah. hits. Tell me what it's it about means. adding context and meaning. And yeah. I think that they have fallen onto panels to do that for too long. I think there's a it's place cheap for and some it's of that. Yeah, know. 
and I would I agree with you. I would love to see a Canadian version of the Daily. I think the CBC is probably the only place that could feasibly put that together in this country. Although other companies might have the geographical presence to do the Globe so, could try. But I think that it would almost like expose how little they have going on every day. You know, if they if they had the pressure to like you know call a different Globe reporter every well, day. Well, and I feel like 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 the company that I work for, we have enough of a, a presence across the country that. I mean, logistically, you have the people. I just don't think any other company has the money to invest in creating something like The Daily. And I would love to see that from the CBC. I think it would be public service journalism at its best. I think it would be going where the audience is going. I think it would be giving younger audiences something that they are clearly using. Almost everybody I know listens to The Daily, and it's an American yeah. version of this. If I had The Daily and then the National AM, as you called Wouldn't it. Wouldn't you listen to a Canadian version I would listen to both. You could do both because it's, it's quick. I, 15, but, you know, you have a, most yeah. people have like a half hour, 45 minute commute. Like you would listen to both to start your day. I don't know why I'm telling them to come compete with me with like, because their podcasts right now are not really a threat to us. This, this would be like a very popular show I'm telling them to go make, but they should go make it. I would listen to it. I would listen to it too. Please do it. Ashley, that's your shortcuts. Thanks for having me. Once again, making friends and alienating people with Jesse Brown. We're here helping people. You can email me at jesse at canadalandshow.com. And we are on Twitter at CanadaLand. Ashley, where can people find you? Uh, you can find me on Twitter at Ashley Chinati. Little weird to spell. Ashley with an L-E-Y. Last name C-S-A-N-A-D-Y. Like us on Facebook and our news stories will enter your news feed. It is just that simple. Otherwise, you can go to CanadaLandShow.com. Our crowdfunding site is Patreon.com slash CanadaLand. Russell Gregg is the producer of this show. Syndication is by CFUV 101.9 FM in Victoria. Visit them online at CFUV.ca. I will be back with a new CanadaLand on Monday. If you like what we do, please support us. Hey, I need you to pay close attention to this message. It is not an ad. This is about Canada land and this is about you. You need to know that the news crisis is about to get a lot worse. You've heard about the layoffs. We're about to have news closures and it's very likely that we're going to be seeing the defunding of the CBC. Where are you going to get your information from? What can you do about this? You can support Canada land. We need you to and so for this month and this month only, you can become a Canada land supporter and get everything our supporters get for just $2 a month. That is an almost 80% discount. The clock is ticking on this. It disappears at the end of the month and then we will not offer it. We need your support. We need to keep news coverage alive in Canada. Go right now to canadaland.com slash join. And thank you. A couple of years ago, a cop was shot dead on a deserted pier in the tiny nation of Belize. The only other person there that night was a frightened young woman found covered in blood. By all appearances, it was an open and shut case. But not in Belize, where this woman was connected to a mysterious billionaire who basically runs the place. Justice will not be served in this case. She's gonna get away with it. Or will she? White Devil, a Campside Media original. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.